Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crude. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week on the podcast, we're talking about David Fincher, a director whose decade-spanning body of gritty Americana, from the grim moral drama of Seven to the revisionist inside Hollywood tale of the recent Mank, has inspired both obsessive fandom and derisive dismissal. A new book by Adam Naiman, David Fincher, Mind Games, offers a canny and timely appraisal of the director's filmography. Adam writes that, over the past 30 years, Fincher has cultivated and maintained a reputation that precedes him of formal rigor and technocratic exactitude, of movie-making as a game of inches. We invited Adam and critic, filmmaker, and former NYFF director Kent Jones, who's written about Fincher many times over the years for Film Comment, for an illuminating deep dive into the Fincherverse. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to a very special episode of the Film Comment podcast. Today's podcast is occasioned by the release of a new book by Film Comment contributor and one of Clinton, my favorite working critics, Adam Naiman, on David Fincher. It's called David Fincher Mind Games. It's being published by Abrams Books, and it's the latest in a very, I feel like, prolific series of books Adam has been putting out, including studies of Paul Thomas Anderson and the movie Showgirls, which he's a famous famous champion of. So it's kind of the latest in this really erudite, but also readable series of books about, about filmmakers. And we're very glad to have Adam uh, today to discuss Fincher's work and his book with us. And the other guest we have today is, you know, someone we're so, so excited uh, to host and is a, is a true, I would say, master of master appreciator of Fincher's work, Kent Jones. So I'm going to ask both of them to introduce themselves briefly, although I think neither need introduction to film comment listeners. Kent, do you want to go first? My name is Kent Jones and I'm filmmaker, former director of the New York Film Festival. Just miss being colleagues with you guys. And I've written quite a bit about Fincher over the years. And he was a, a big part of a film that I made, Hitchcock Truefall. And uh, I'm Adam Naiman. I'm from Toronto. I'm a contributing editor to Cinemascope, which is a Canadian film magazine that in the past has had Kent as a contributor, including On Fincher, a piece that's very personally important to me, and I don't think the book would have existed without. And uh, I write regularly on film for The Ringer, and I have been writing these Books for Abrams on uh, the Coens, on on Paul Thomas Anderson and and Fincher, completing a kind of, uh, I don't know, film bro formalist trilogy. I can now put these filmmakers away and, uh, I don't know, deal with something, deal deal with something potentially more uh, obscure and less accessible. And Fincher was by far the hardest of these books to write. And I think talking about those films, uh, especially with someone who's as apt about them as Kent might sort of, you know, give an impression as to why. Cohen's, that's the one I forgot in my intro. I was thinking there's the third, the third bro filmmaker. <laughs> Everyone always forgets the Cohen's. They're so obscure. No one's ever written anything about their work. It's hard for them to, you know, they, they, they just slip through the cracks, right? It's about time. Yeah. Yeah. They'll make a dent someday. Well, I'm interested in this and why Fincher was, you mentioned, uh, maybe Kent could shed some light on this, but why Fincher was so much more difficult for you to write about. 
I think writing about form in a way that's beyond merely descriptive can be hard. And I think writing about style when the style isn't simply ostentatious, you know, when the style is almost kind of indivisible from storytelling, when the style is indivisible in some ways from, from content can be challenging. And I think also writing about authorship when you have a filmmaker who's not a generator of his own material, maybe in the singer-songwriter way that we're used to with certain celebrated auteur filmmakers. I mean, with the Cohen, you, you come from the understanding that they're kind of pastiche artists and that sometimes it's direct adaptation and sometimes it's more influence, but that's kind of the line on their work, right? That they, that they synthesize almost in a folk ballad way, you know, aspects of the pop cultural past and make it their own. And Anderson, seems to, especially more and more, seem to generate things from kind of within himself and his authorship in the right, right, writer and director aspect of his work is very overt. But with Fincher, you sometimes do the industrial research and it's jobs for hire or projects that predate his participation or works that are perceived as somehow as being very mercenary, whether that's actually true or not. And especially writing a book about Fincher around the release of Mank and the various pushbacks against Mank from different wings of film criticism and from film scholarship and film history, it, it, it made it feel like kind of a hard book to write because there was this incursion on a certain territory that the movie was making, but also that his comments about the movie were making. And it brought a lot of the polarity about his work back to the forefront. Like I feel that in the last seven years after Gone Girl, there'd been a certain very positive celebratory feeling about Fincher and especially on social media because Gone Girl was so loved by like Twitter and Tumblr, right? As a screen grab kind of movie and a meme kind of movie. And then when Mank came out, I felt that kind of turning while I was in the process of not just writing on that film, but the book in general. And I started to feel very uncertain about the best way to shape an angle and position this book, on top of which he's hard to write about for those other reasons I said, those reasons of of, of style and intent and, and industrial orientation. I'm kind of curious, and this is a question for Adam and, and Kent. Adam, why, why do you think it's interesting to look at Fincher's work in 2021? And I, I ask because for a few different reasons. One, I think a lot of his films are really, at least to me, feel like documents of their time, like really perfect documents of their time and zeitgeisty in a very excellent way. And Mank is probably the least uh, like that to me. And I'm curious, you know, thinking about his films in the last couple of years, what struck you as something that's relevant today or enduring like through time? Why? Well, I- I defer to something that Kent wrote about Gone Girl in a really, in a piece that was in Film Comment. He was writing about it, Kent, you were writing about it at the time that it came out. And you said something about, it's this world of like hyper-mediated personas where everybody's checking how they seem to look to other people. And in some ways that's so perceptive because it's not really a Twitter, Tumblr, social media movie. It is to a small extent. But the degree to which Twitter and Instagram and these other things would infect our lives, it's actually pretty, pretty early in the game. That sort of seemed to be 
part of this extremely contemporary through line in some of Fincher's work about media and communication and certainly the idea of messaging and getting messaging out into the public sphere, which is all the way back in a movie like Seven, but, you know, kept being refined and I think in, in line and in sync with certain, you know, 21st century realities. And I think that Mank, in a way, the interesting half of that movie for me is also about that, especially that idea of manufacturing, you know, ideology or manufacturing political sloganeering or what, you know, the, the, the makers of those images are going to let get out into the public sphere and how they're going to try and control it. And that's the part of Mank that in watching it and writing about it, I tried to tie to Fincher's work overall and tie to the necessity of that movie in the 20 in 2020 or 2021 and in some ways it's a really perfect movie for 2020 in an election year that half of the movie is very timely in a way that it wouldn't have been if he'd made it back in the 90s when he supposedly wanted to you know I think Fincher is a very zeitgeisty filmmaker sometimes people have said that about him almost to a fault and that's where some of my initial skepticism about him happened in the 90s when as a teenager learning more and more about film history I felt like he was a thing to be resisted a little bit, which is another reason I wanted to write this book. Like Anderson, he's a filmmaker that my younger self was very down on. I kind of didn't know what I was talking about because I was 15 or 16 or 17 years old and kind of dumb. But it felt really important to me in the 90s that these were not filmmakers that I liked. And the turnaround that I've had on them has been fun to try and figure out through the, through the writing. I think that the world of cinephilia, film criticism that's not, you know, part of, you know, major news organs, not that there's much of that left now, but the way it was before, there was a distinction between people who wrote for smaller magazines, such as Film Comment, and, or magazines with smaller circulations, rather Film Comment, Cinemascope, Sight and Sound, you know, as opposed to uh, more popular stuff. I think that there has always been a bias against filmmakers like Fincher and a suspiciousness of anybody who has a certain amount of success and who operates with a certain amount of power within the industry. That's true of Paul too. It's true of, um, I mean, in Paul's case, I think that he, he started off with such a bang and was so flashy that everybody was, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people were very suspect. There's a very moralistic streak that, that goes through um, cinephilia. And, you know, I had certainly passed through that needle myself, too. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I remember when I saw Zodiac and I was talking about it with another critic whose name I won't mention, but who's extremely influential on a lot of younger people. And he said, Oh, I'm not going to see that film. I'm not interested in that kind of cinema. It's like, I don't even know what that means. You know? Um, I mean, I know what it means, but <laughs> what did he mean by that kind of cinema? He meant that he's not interested in anything that costs over a certain amount of money that is involved in a certain level of artifice. There's an extremely pronounced bias against artifice in general, unless it's a certain kind of artifice, like the kind of artifice you find in like Long Day's Journey into Night, for instance, and a bias against uh, a certain kind of writing and a certain kind of acting. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's still present to a certain degree. And so I think that he kind of, you know, hits all those buttons. Plus he's a filmmaker who, as Adam says, is not writing his own scripts he's following his own themes though 
I mean, you know, there's a, there's a thing that he said in my movie about Hitchcock, where he said, if you're a director, you know, you, there's no way you can hide yourself. You, you, you're all, all of your weird obsessions, everything personal is, is exposed, whether you like it or not. So either you, you know, pretend to hide it and make a bad movie or you don't hide it and follow your, you know, your, your interest. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that as a filmmaker, I just want to say, I'm, I'm thinking of something that Vincent Minnelli says in the men who made the movies, the Schickle thing. He said, you know, any good movie is the result of about a hundred secret things. Um, if you look at a Vincent Minnelli movie, like, you know, made for the Arthur Freed unit versus a, a, a movie, you know, made by, I don't know, George Sidney or something like that from the forties or fifties, you can see the difference instantly. It's in tiny details that are placed throughout the frame, the way that every, every extra has something that they're doing. That's very specific, but also feels very believable, you know, rooted in time. It's the same with Fincher with Fincher. Um, for instance, you know, one detail that seems minor, but that isn't when he was making mind hunter, he had to digitally alter the, um, corners of the in street corners so that he could get rid of the um the ramps um that have been put in all over the united states um because they didn't exist now that might seem like oh why bother you know nobody's going to notice but of course you do notice it without knowing that you're noticing it and um you know that's that's a very important thing and that's one of the you know, that's just a minor example of something that's, that's you know, a, a, a huge part of why he's such a great artist. Well, like with The Social Network, for instance, what Kent's saying is, I think, so apt with that movie where I think the only comment Zuckerberg had on that movie was that he's like, those are the sweaters that I wore, right? Which is such a funny thing for him to say, because there's so much that's being left unsaid in that comment. This was a comment more or less at the time. There was a magazine feature where people said, what do you think of the movie? And he, and he said, I'm going to see it. And I'm going to enjoy it. I mean, he's trying to talk like someone who is who he is, which is someone who has more money than the rest of the world put together and who doesn't want to come off as having sour grapes, even though I'm sure he's mad about aspects of that script. And so in Social Network, there really is a tension between different kinds of veracity. There's a textural veracity to that movie. That's astonishing. And it's not a recreated period piece like a Mindhunter or Benjamin Button is, but it's still enough historical distance that you have to work for it to get it to be right. And then there's also huge flights of imagination in that movie. There's Aaron Sorkin's imagination of things that did not happen as they happened. There's Fincher's way of relating to Zuckerberg, which in interviews he's very honest about, where he says he doesn't see that he didn't see the film at the time as a critique or a put down or a tear down of Zuckerberg instead, I think honestly, and when Kent says that filmmakers are to some extent not hiding in their work, it's an interesting example where he says it did remind him, I'm quoting him as opposed to him sitting here and saying, this is actually what he still means. But he said at the time, the movie reminded him of his days of propaganda and his days sort of trying to break into music videos and into Hollywood and that mix of ambition and attitude and wanting to tear something down and build something up and having the, the ambition to do that which is why so many people have asked these questions recently about social network and has had these anniversary pieces and they're like, it got the story wrong and it's set at the wrong point in history and it doesn't understand Facebook's influence and the kind of person that, that, that Zuckerberg became. And that to me is also secondary and so beside the point of what the movie is. But the movie as a mix of what Kent is talking about, like a veracity that goes from the outside in, whether it's street corners or sweaters, right? 
that then creates a context of reality that you can then actually shape things dramatically inside. And whatever you think of the social network's timing or what more happened with Zuckerberg or with social media or Facebook, I think as a piece of drama, it's terrific. I don't think it's dishonest or fails as a piece of drama within a dramatic space. It's really powerful. And the things that it's about are, are I don't think, have dated badly. Sorry, Ken, what were you going to say? The amount of attention that people placed on movies as harbingers of, you know, uh, social change at this point is just insane. I mean, you know, it, the social network's a movie. It's not going to, you know, he's going to make a movie if he's going to have to alter history in order to make the movie work. That's what he's going to do. That's what anybody who's making a movie does. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, and so, you know, the idea that that's a valid criticism is just, is just off. I would say, um, and one thing that I always re return to in relation to that particular movie, apart from his decision to step on the gas and uh, have all the dialogue delivered at, you know, um, a rhythm that's even faster than like, you know, his girl Friday, which is a brilliant idea. Because the faster you get through Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, the better it sounds, I think. Um, but also you, the, the scene where he creates, where he's sitting there in his room after the date, has gone sour with Rooney Mara and he goes up there and he creates that, that page intercut with the girls being delivered to the, you know, on the buses to the party and everybody, you know, watching everything happening in real time remains one of the great, yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And I wrote something about this that I, you know, there are images in that montage that you remember that last less than a second. There's a guy with a baseball hat sitting in the room with a beer in his hand. He, he, you don't, I don't even know who he is. I don't know what the actor is. He's, he's barely there, but you remember him. That's a very um, special gift that Fincher has to make everything move in a complex fashion that's interrelated, but you can't quite get a handle on all of it. But then at the same time, every single choice is crystal clear. That's a rare cinematic intelligence. I'm just going to say that time and again in the book, what Ken's talking about, I think, comes to the fore and how I try and write about the films, which is that seeming paradox, but he makes it non-paradoxical. He makes it perfectly integrated of speed and clarity. And some of that is the language of advertising that people were so worried about with him. And I talk in the book too, even before Fincher, when Kale's writing about Richard Lester in the 60s and that fear that the language of advertising or proto-music video is going to degrade storytelling. I mean, in Fincher's case, it just becomes a different form of graphical storytelling. The shot that Ken's talking about is amazing, especially because in the background, and you don't notice this the first time, or you notice it subliminally, but there's a poster on the wall that reads brains versus boobs, right? Which is such a perfect distillation of all of the seething, competitive jealousy and it's a jealousy that has to do with sex and status and insider and outsider that that montage Kent's talking about is about right and the way that he uses speed in that movie is not promiscuous it's brilliant I mean the beginning of Mark going home it's like a Pac-Man game he's alone and he's slow and the size and the size of the campus is overpowering so he can only move at a certain rate even when he's jogging it feels very languorous the cutting is slow and when he goes online, the cutting accelerates in line with the speed of online, that kind of synaptic speed you get on the internet. And in the book, I talked to Angus 
wall about that, a genius level editor, one of the brilliant collaborators who Fincher works with. And he talks about how within Fincher's design for the movie and their discussions about it, this is sort of just the most natural and intuitive thing in the world. It's not something that an Aaron Sorkin can put in a screenplay. It's something that the directorial authorship and the collaboration with the editor finds. But man, when those things go together and you have Sorkin's dialogue, the speed that Fincher directs his actors to talk at, and then the way that editing can deal with speed, and it's all, as Kent's saying, in the service of clarity, it's astonishing. You know, it, it, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the idea of being barraged with so much information, but it's not overwhelming because of the precise choices of how you're looking at things and what you're looking at on a second to second basis. And this is why I find it hard to talk about and write about, because in writing about it, you almost are just replicating it in an appreciative way. And that can also get boring, right? You, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge, even though the film makes you want to talk about it a lot. You know, we were talking before we began recording and I said The Social Network was the first Fincher I saw and I was 16 and I downloaded it and watched it on my laptop. And I I remember just pausing and rewinding again and again because the dialogue would, you know, move so fast and I really wanted to, um, you know really wanted to like record these zingers and this, this, the Aaron Sor Sorkin, like rapid, uh, line delivery and these little details because the, the pace of the movie, like you were saying, Adam is like, it was so thrilling to experience because it did feel like that synaptic experience of coming into the internet at that time for me in 2010. And I think what was really wonderful was that unlike, you know, like the movies of Christopher Nolan or these other mind game filmmakers, which are designed to be unpacked. And in some, you know, people have argued designed to be watched digitally and uh, to be rewinded and rewatched and watched backwards. That's not the feeling you get from watching something like The Social Network or Zodiac. I mean, they're so linear. They're not necessarily inviting you to, you know, unravel or untangle their narrative construction, but they still invite that kind of obsession and they still invite that kind of being at the mercy of their pace but also wanting to slow it down and observe all the details cards on the table the piece that kent wrote in scope about it was mostly about benjamin button actually which is a whole other interesting movie to talk about because it's the one in writing the book i found the most emotionally overwhelming even though my chapter on it is very critical but Zodiac's the movie of his that I think a lot of people have kind of now just assessed as like, this is the great film, even though that wasn't the reception at the time. And Kent, you wrote something in that scope piece about the moment when Ruffalo arrives at the Presidio after the taxi cab guy is shot, right? When, when Tosky shows up, the soundtrack quotes Charles Ives, and you wrote about how the murder that's just happened, and which we've seen in the film, like it feels as far away as the dawn of the universe. And there was something about the way that you described that, that stuck with me through not my first viewing of Zodiac, because I'd seen the movie already, but through subsequent viewings and this uncanny thing. And I want, I'd love you to talk about what you think, because it's not just simply writing or directing or intention, but it's palpable. I've rarely seen a movie where time seems to swallow things like Zodiac does. That when things are over, they're over and they feel remote, they can't be, and it's also because the movie never does flashbacks. 
it's a movie whose sense of time is like when Anderson uses ellipsis and there will be blood, it's devastating, but then he fills in some of the time with these little cutbacks to what's been lost. Zodiac's not just linear. It never circles back. It never does what almost any procedural does, which is go back to show you what happened. It, there's no flashbacks. The movie just feels like time is being swallowed, you know? It goes against the grain of what the movie is, though. Yeah, it does. Because in the movie, you know, look, I mean, one of the things that, that makes his film so unusual is his grasp of people's delusion that they can control what they can't control. It's what makes Mindhunter such a remarkable experience, you know, both seasons of it. The second one is, is you know, with particularly tragic consequences. And that's, you know, that's a moment that's achieved with an incredible amount of artifice. Um, you know, didn't he have the, the screen, you know, the green screen, portable green screen behind Mark Ruffalo when he's running, right? Because the, the houses on the on that hill had changed a little bit. And he just finds himself standing there. And yes, David Shire's score is, is grounded in the unanswered question by Ives. The unanswered question, you know, is, is basically strings per performing the same harmonic moves over and over again with the horn, as Leonard Bernstein would put it, asking the question. And then, you know, the, the, the woodwinds come in with these unintelligible answers. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the score really, really does echo um, the unanswered question throughout. That's what the film is. And so, you know, he's left wondering, you, there's a sense of him being kind of alone in the universe. What he wants to get his, get a grasp on, he can't because it's just happened. But, you know, by chance, the guy has just, you know, gotten away. What's led up to it is that very strange kind of cartoonish overhead created shot over the taxi, you know, which Fincher was very specific about with, with the special effects people. He wanted it to look artificial so that it felt like you were just following in perfect, in a perfect path. And then, you know, uh, Mark Ruffalo arrives too late, obviously, because he's the cop and he's called in after the murder. And it's just kind of what happened? Who is this guy? Why is he doing this? How do I, apprehend him so the sense of being you know it's something that just happened half an hour ago or an hour ago or something like that within the reality of the film but then it's it's uh it, it could be you know the distant the distant past you don't get a grasp on it and then he returns to the same location later in the film and then he just kind of you know hovers there but it's emblematic of what the whole film is and um it's also true of Benjamin Button. You know, people are trying to grasp that stuff and it's just slipping away and they have the two of them happen to find this moment, but then the moment passes. And I mean, just to introduce another topic, I'm sure, Adam, that in your comments on Benjamin Button, you're talking about the script when, when, you, when you're saying that you're critical of aspects of the film. You know, the script is one thing, the movie's something else. A lot of the conversations that I've had with people about Benjamin Button have been about the script. The movie is a, is a very different story and all you have to do, it's a, it's a real lesson in understanding what directing a film is to look at Benjamin Button back to back with Forrest Gump if you have the stomach to watch Forrest Gump again. Adam calls it, it uh, Forrest Gump, the evil twin of Benjamin Button. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I look at them closely side by side in the chapter for that reason. And cards on the table about Benjamin Button, what I'd say is that 
when I saw that film, I would have been 28 and hugely impressed by Zodiac, but, you know, uh, seeing that film and, and being stuck in a very prosaic space with how much I despise Forrest Gump and how always for my whole life and how similarly some of the story beats felt. And when I was gearing up to write this chapter for the book, you know, I'd looked at the movie a few times, but looking at it again, that shot, and it's the one shot in the movie that I make a full page illustration in the chapter of Blanchett bending down to steal a kiss from the little toddler. That's not a huge difference in my life. That's 10 or 11 years later. And I don't believe that life experiences fundamentally alter the works that you're watching. I mean, that's a lot, but I'm a parent a couple times over now. And there's something in that moment that I find even talking about it now safely on this podcast with headphones on, you know, it's beyond overwhelming and it's not the script, it's the image. And you can break down why it's so powerful within the surreal logic of the story and these people meeting late in life, but the, you know, the ages and whatever are reversed. But the image is so lucid and eloquent to not just what the script is talking about, but beyond what the script is talking about, beyond what Fitzgerald's story is talking about. It, it's, it's magical. And then for a director as controlling as Fincher to admit in the commentary that that shot was kind of found, right? Like the setup was undertaken. They knew they wanted a shot of Blanchett and the kid walking, but the exact framing between the trees and the exact choreography of the kiss and the moment where the kid reaches up for it was actually to some extent a bit of an accident. The accidents that contradict all the mythology about Fincher being micromanagerial and down to the millimeter and the impossible eye and all the stuff that's always written about him. It's he put himself in a position through repetition and takes to capture that. And without knowing it when I was 28, and I guess without knowing it now till I rewatch the commentary now at 40, the moment is what it is. It feels captured and magical and beyond writing and beyond intention. It's overwhelming as an idea of what, of what life and parenthood and childhood and love sort of are. And so, sorry, Ken, just before you say, I'd say to your point about you got to separate the script from the movie. When I look at that shot, I can't help but separate the script from the movie because everything that's kind of prosaic or predictable or overstated in the script for that movie, where it constantly, to some extent, narrates how we're meant to feel is forgiven and to use the oceanic aspect of the movie, it's washed away by a shot like that. I don't care about my reservations about the movie when I look at a frame like that. When I look at a frame like that, I'm so emotionally grateful for its existence and it will stay with me long after my criticisms about the movie kind of are, 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 are floated away. That actually makes me think of a question that I wanted to ask both of you guys. And I'm going to out myself as a, a skeptic of Fincher's work, to say the least. I felt, you know, as as Adam said, since high school when I saw Seven, or maybe even junior high when I saw Seven, and also the great disappointment I felt in middle school when I saw Alien 3, I think first starting probably there. I think that's where this began. But I think that uh, as you're talking, I think, and as I'm rewatching and preparing for this podcast, I'm thinking about like, what about this filmmaker's work uh, tends to leave me so cold. And I think it has something to do with this, the scripts, partially, this, this difference, this split between the filmmaking, which is, you know, brilliant and un undeniably so, and a grasp on characters as human beings, which I feel like is sometimes less uh, undeniable in his films. 
But I will say that this moment that you're talking about in Benjamin Button also reminds me of the thing that I appreciate most in his films, which is the are these moments of kind of narrative dissolve where this clockwork storyline and and rigid construction sort of melts away and we have these denouement like in uh the set the there's always there's these moments or periods in his films where the storyline kind of is no longer driving things. And I'm thinking of in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, this back half after the murder is, after the killer is, you know, dispatched with, we have this whole other section of the film. And I think this happens in Zodiac. Zodiac is sort of the, where this is, that's sort of the organizing principle of the film. But I want to ask a little bit about two things, about his depiction of the characters as kind of complex human beings. And secondly, these narrative constructions that sort of drift away at, at times. Look, I mean, first of all, um, also just, you know, take, I, take, take me to the woodshed as they say in Gone Girl, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when Adam was talking before about control, you know, that's what people always say about Stanley Kubrick, for instance. But, you know, if you look at Stanley Kubrick's films very carefully, you can see he's just as interested in getting to the surprise moment as any good filmmaker is, you know, says Fincher, you know, what is it that's so uncanny about Tilda Swinton and Brad Pitt wandering through the hotel in, in the Soviet Union in Benjamin Button? Well, it's, it's finding little grace notes that you can't plan. If you plan something um, and all you do is put what you've planned on the screen, you wind up with like 90% of what you see on Netflix now, I guess. But, you know, also you just, you wind up with something that doesn't live. Fincher's films to me, you know, I, I would certainly take issue with the fact that he doesn't have a grasp of, of a good grasp of, you know, what it is to be human. I'm paraphrasing you. I'm sorry. It's the same with Kubrick. It's just that their view of humanity is a little more from a slightly more cosmic perspective. It's interesting. And I'm, again, I'm, I apologize for, doing something that's part of my own work, but it's something he said in my own work. And so, you know, when he's talking about Alfred Hitchcock and he's talking about his interest in aberrant psychology and craziness, and then he's saying, but, you know, the irony is that with his actors, you would only explore it three seconds at a time. But, you know, which is true. But with Fincher, he also is exploring it within, you know, very, very finite, you know, uh, carefully defined um, boundaries. And so... That's one thing. I think that the other thing is that when it comes to scripts, generally what people mean is dialogue when they're talking about scripts. Whereas a script is really the structure that you're working from and building from. And the dialogue is just kind of like, you know, the dialogue. Sometimes dialogue is more important. Like in the Coen Brothers films, the language is extremely important. The dialogue is extremely important in a Preston Sturges film, obviously, for other reasons. In Fincher's films, I would say that the dialogue in general is of far lesser importance than anything else. And that includes the social network. It's, it's not about what people say in that movie as much as the rhythm with which they say it and the way that they talk over each other and try to get on top of what the other person is saying before they finished it. It's the power game aspect of it. So I think that when I'm watching Zodiac, somebody will open their mouth and say something that makes me wince or that did make me wince when I first saw it, but that I don't really care about anymore. 
that makes Fincher wince, you know, when the little boy says, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal says, why did you swallow your toothpaste? It was minty. You know, that's like something out of a, um, a, a, a 60s, you know, TV show. But, you know, the point is not what people say, it's what the action is. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Well, and to talk about that idea of action and try and address Clint's question and build on what Kent is saying, I want to, you were talking about Dragon Tattoo and that weird victory lap it takes after the killer's apprehended. There's such... When she gets her revenge, when she goes all over the world and puts the wig on. Yeah. And, yeah. There, there is such character in staging and costume there, the way she's seen in between these personas. And it's not just as simple as saying she has a blonde wig to do her stuff and then she comes back to the hotel. It's that the blonde wig is over the dark roots and the leather jacket is over a white bra. And she's moving through these in-between spaces of hotels and trains. She's not at home, but she's also not in any one persona. She's constantly, as Kent so smartly said about Gone Girl and it's true in Social Network, sort of hypermediating her appearance. And this is for someone who's very interested in the face she presents to the world and the things that she keeps private and the things that she surveils like her own rape. And then also the things that she chooses to be kind of insular about. And so people have often written about that scene and said, it's like a whole movie on top of a movie that's already finished. That's maybe the material. I don't like the material. I don't like that novel. I don't really like what that novel's about. I don't like the way that novel uses a kind of progressive politic to get off on incredible sadism and and, and violence and stuff that's like sea level pulp to me. The book, the movie is a is an act of transubstantiation. It's not, you know, triumphing over that material through direction. It's changing it. And so if you were to ask me on the page, is Elizabeth Salander a particularly interesting character in your literary experience? Like, no, not really. On film, just the way that she leaves her lipstick on the coffee cup and the way that he films her, as Kent was saying, not the what, the how, the way that she tosses the wig and then the way that that wig gets tossed counterbalanced with how she throws the leather jacket away in the final moment. And we're now out of pulp. We're past material. We're into that realm where the how of the filmmaking matters so much that it's not just taking thin characters and making them tolerable. It's like there's real feeling there. And Dragon Tattoo, just to be able to say it on the record on a podcast, I cannot think of a movie that benefits more from industrial coincidence around it that it didn't get sequels. Not only because Fincher didn't end up getting stuck in a franchise, but that sense of incompleteness, which I'm sure the sequel would immediately junk because the stupid novels make them come back together over and over again. It gives the film this kind of tragic, open, irresolved ending that is so of a piece with Fincher's later work. And thank goodness that that happened. I think that there's this coda, and that this coda is free from the script, as Kent just described it. We're no longer beholden to this murder mystery. And what bothers me about the movie up until that coda is that we're so locked into the script that they have to, these two characters who seem to have no spark are suddenly like sleeping together 
and because the narrative seems to demand it. And that to me is where this grasp on characters as, as people, I mean, I'm all for people don't have to behave in consistent ways in movies because people don't behave in consistent ways in reality. But some of his choice, some of the narrative choices in his films are a step beyond for me. I think Gone Girl also kind of pushes it. I think it's important to differentiate the films. I think that Gone Girl and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo are a little bit apart in the sense that he wanted to take popular novels and, you know, as he called Gone Girl, it's a great supermarket read. You know, I, it, it's like, and he, you know, I remember him saying, he was talking about what's his name's character, you know, the guy who gets his throat slashed, Neil Patrick Harris. He said, when I was casting that role, I thought, who could I possibly cast in this role? Because I've never met a human being like this. They don't exist. Oh, I guess I'll get Neil Patrick Harris. And I mean, you know, um, yeah. So the thing is that that with those two movies in particular, you're dealing with trying to make something that's outlandish or that really isn't viable, viable. So that, you know, and he gets about as, you know, he does as good a job as I can imagine anybody doing on, for instance, in Gone Girl, her, you know, outlandish maneuverings. You're just like, okay, this just, you know, is, is not something that's that's real and he's doing a great job of making it feel come close and with neil patrick harris it's the same thing you're looking at the character and you're just like okay who is this guy you know i mean he's just you know a plot device it's um but then you know um what happens in both movies for me at least is something that's similar to what happens in movies from the 40s and the 50s you know where people would use you know in they would they would refer to it as smuggling where you know there are things that happen in the movie that are under the surface that have that are that are you know values that are found in the script in order to elude the production code etc cetera, etc cetera. so when you have um daniel craig moving into that you know there's something about the way that he frames you know he's he's a, a, a maniac at stabilizing every shot that he does and so the approach to that house when daniel craig goes to visit christopher Palmer um is um is unforgettable when he's brought out to this ridiculous like shed where he's going to live that has no heat um these things all become very memorable and tactile and then gone girl you know when i think of gone girl i think about that moment when um the the woman takes the selfie and then he's like wait a minute you know and, and 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 it works very well with you know ben affleck and his you know screen persona or you know the moment with Tyler Perry is pelting him with, with milk duds or, you know, or whatever it is. So it's a little different. On the other hand, you know, when he gets into my television and Mindhunter and he said, by the way, just as a little aside, he said something very funny to me after he had been in Pittsburgh for what, two years, three years, making both Mindhunter series. He said, well, I just came from the doctor and I've had a blood test and um, I'm happy to report that I'm completely, you know, my system is completely television free, but <laughs> he, he, you know, but Mindhunter, uh, he's able to indulge in something popular because he's doing, you know, he's doing the series idea, but then it's a whole different world. You know, I mean, he's building the characters as real characters. 
I, I try in the book to treat it and it's a choice. I, at the screenings I was doing in New York, I had two separate people not yell at me about this, but they bought their book and they came to have it signed and they said, why is there nothing about House of Cards in this book? And I said, well, this is personal preference. He directed two episodes of that show and I don't care, right? Mindhunter, I write about as a major work for him. In fact, I think it's the spine of his career. I think Seven, Zodiac and Mindhunter are the spine and they speak to each other in interesting ways. I think Seven is a bit of, Zodiac's a bit of a correction of Seven. If a, if a movie is perfect at Seven requires a correction that's somewhat imperfect, Zodiac offers it. And that's you know, a whole other conversation. But Mindhunter is a way to use that, which frustrates and can be annoying to me about TV, which is its run-on quality and its essential shapelessness and its refusal to commit to shape and story the way that movies does. He's one of the only auteur filmmakers who uses that in a thoughtful, productive, effective way, not just to go on and on, right? But to use the run-on quality of their project and the blind alleys that these characters find themselves going down as a kind of comment on the practice itself. And I have a colleague, like Ken said with a critic for him, I have a colleague who I won't name, but he's one of the smartest people I know who watched the first episode of Mindhunter and was like, this is just bad. I can't take this dialogue, this garbage. Why are you watching this? And it's that same frustration. And it's a weird frustration to have on behalf of a popular Netflix series. Like Mindhunter doesn't exactly need to be propped up, but it's the frustration you have of, you're not watching the thing. You're not watching it. You're not watching the how of it, the, the how of it being made is what it's about not what the characters are saying. Well, that kind of like leads into a question I had and maybe kind of gets at what Clint was asking too. I mean, I I like Fincher a lot more than Clint, so it's kind of a devil's advocate question. But I think one reason why people might dismiss his work easily, and this is something I struggled with while rewatching Seven this week too, is there's a lot that's familiar about the work. I mean, it's kind of playing on these familiar tropes from Hollywood cinema and familiar structures. There's there's idiosyncratic things that Fincher is doing to those templates, but there's a lot that's familiar and a lot that makes me wonder, is he kind of the apotheosis of you know a certain kind of Hollywood filmmaking or is he more than that yeah I mean it depends on what you mean by the apotheosis of a certain kind of Hollywood filmmaking to me has a negative ring to it so if you're characterizing Hollywood as inherently a negative entity then the question's kind of unanswerable I, I, I myself don't agree. Well, I don't mean it as negative, but I mean it more as familiar, you know, a certain kind of like approach to continuity and linearity and a slickness and tightness of plot. And Well, I thought about familiarity with Seven because you were at the screening this week where I showed it at Momi. I had two feelings during that screening because when I'm watching a movie and unlike Kent, who is actually a filmmaker and who has put himself into making films that... Um, you know, a sense of ownership or, or, or accomplishment when you show something. I've never made anything. I often show movies that I've written about, right? It's a very different feeling. It's not remotely the same thing. But when you're showing a movie and speaking to a movie, I like watching the audience during it. And I'm not responsible for the sensations that they're having, but about 20 people said they were seeing Seven for the first time. So I was like, this will be fun. I'm going to watch them watch this movie. And I'm not just familiar with Seven because I've watched it a lot. I think you're right that it's familiar, but I don't think in 1995 that it was familiar. 
right? When you're saying it's familiarity and apotheosis of certain tropes, that's a movie watching it now, the people watching it for the first time, they're feeling like it's inventing something in terms of the way it's told and the way it holds the audience. You were there, you could hear a pin drop during that screening. I'm listening and all I'm hearing is nothing during two hours of watching that film. And this is a movie that anyone can watch on Netflix anytime, but seen big, which is a whole other thing about Fincher's work, which is it's so digital and tied to the digital now, but boy, does it benefit from theatrical projection. I've never seen make big. I don't know if that would make a difference. But like when you look at the initial reception of Seven, and I pay a lot of attention to reception of the book, I juxtapose what Maslin wrote about it in the New York Times and what Amy Taubin wrote about it. And you know what? They're both seeing the same movie, but one of them is saying, ugh, cops, robbers, sadism, boring, and the other one's invoking Baudelaire. And I'm sorry, the one who's reaching and invoking Baudelaire is not just more right about the career that's going to follow. She's more right about the film. If you're looking at Seven in 1995 or now and you're just seeing tropes, you're not, I'm not saying this to you, Devik, I'm just saying in general, you're not seeing it. You look at that film and you see Baudelaire, you think of Poe and the man in the crowd. And it's a movie that has so many highbrow literary and scriptural references in it. So it's kind of guiding you to see it through those lenses. It's guiding you to see it through Dante or, or, or through Chaucer or whatever else. But it's closer to those things. And I don't think there's a lot of Hollywood cinema, apotheosis of it or not, in the early 90s that's operating in that realm of invention. So if Seven is familiar, it's because Fincher invented something there that other people have been kind of ripping off and, and, and kind of getting fat off of his own invention of, of, of that kind of 90s slickness. What I'm just interested in is that as a teenager, for the reasons Ken said at the beginning, I felt like pushing back against it, but I did not know what I was talking about. And I watch enough new movies for a living now that if something came out that had like one scintilla of what Seven has for, for construction or for, or, for, or for storytelling, I'd probably do cartwheels over it. Doesn't exist now. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to say, just to address the, the terms of the question, I don't see anything inherently objectionable about linearity, tight narrative construction, et cetera, et cetera. It's true that, you know, in industrial filmmaking, anything can be fetishized and, and, and you know, uh, yoked for mass production. But that doesn't mean that, that there's anything inherently wrong with that means of making a movie creatively. It's just that you have to be the creator, to employ them, um, you know, with some kind of meaning and, and, and to invest them with your own, you know, uh, belief and desire. But I also think that um, in regard to Seven, I felt negatively about it when I first saw it, too, because I wasn't into seeing yet another movie about a serial killer because it was like... It, as a friend of mine said, you know, it reminded him of listening to a Nine Inch Nails record. And it was just kind of like whatever. It was all of a piece with, with, with that stuff and that kind of like gothic stuff that was still floating around at that point. Um, but then to go back and look at it, I, and even at the time, though, I must say, you know, that chase through the hallways, just, I was like, wow, this is a whole other reality. In terms of Fincher's relation to Hollywood, yeah, he's 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 very much. You could you can see links between him and you know certain films that he loves, Chinatown, The Godfather, you know, The Maltese Falcon, and then also you know obviously Hitchcock and and, and Kubrick. Um, but you know, where is he taking it? I mean, you know, that's the big question. So you know, there's some people who take that stuff and they make a, a fetish out of it and it's a dead end you know paul thomas anderson has a deep relationship with those films too but he, he you know he and 
David and you know the Cones take that that relationship in a different direction. Well, I guess that is my question. How what how would you characterize where Fincher takes it? Well, here's a movie that hasn't come up yet, and one that be curious to know what people think of because if Benjamin Button was the one that proved revelatory for me to write about where I was like, my, my problems with this movie kind of dissipate in the space of certain images and feelings that come with that images, the toughest nut of all the crack, and it's a personal thing. And though I don't write very personally, I mean, Devika has, has looked at the book, you've read it. I mean, I don't enter this book almost at all, right? Because I, I try and write with a weird kind of objectivity that's fake and, and it's not real, but it's how I choose to orient myself. I'm not telling stories about myself in this book. But Fight Club is a movie that for people my age was such a big deal and you were obliged, even, even in the proto-internet age, you were kind of obliged, I found among my film-loving friends, to kind of have an opinion on it. I felt very obliged for that opinion to be negative, to offset not so much how what was in the movie, but the fact that a certain kind of person liked it. And then phrases like hate the band, not the fans start entering into the popular lexicon about all kinds of pop cultural products where it's like the influence of Fight Club or the popularity of Fight Club or the kind of person who likes Fight Club. And then in writing this book, I'm writing about it with a wealth of 20th anniversary pieces to peruse. And this is another form of the online film critical cultural economy that's now sprung up where almost every movie gets an anniversary piece. I'm sometimes guilty of this for The Ringer where, you know, I'm writing about Cape Fear at 30 or something at 20. And sometimes you try and turn a game into it, but sometimes you really do need to reassess these kinds of works. And I found with Fight Club, every single thing that bothered me about it when I was younger kind of still bothered me about it, but other things about it have been so kind of undeniably true. And I don't just mean in a zeitgeist way or a cultural way. I just mean in terms of, uh, I don't know, a kind of filmmaking that's disappeared, an actual analog brick and mortar physical approach to filmmaking and sets and locations that's vanished in the digital that that movie is just virtuoso at, like just the number of setups in that movie the number of locations in that movie, the amount of Kent is saying of actors in the background who kind of have to be doing interesting things. And I was looking at it now and thinking a movie of this quality barely exists anymore anyway. And this isn't about its ideology or whether it's fascist or or not, or progressive or not, or whether it's funny or whether it's not. I'm just kind of looking at it as filmmaking and throwing my hands up and going, why did I reject this when I was 20? Because people don't make movies like this anymore. I never thought I would look at Fight Club as a, as, a, as a sense of a kind of classicism or as a kind of throwback. But this just doesn't exist now. I have to say, in 1999, in my freshman year, uh, uh, the language of cinema class, Alex Juhas taught us uh, Fight Club and um, American Psycho. And I think they'd just come out. So <laughs> these were like, uh, they were already classics to... to for some scholars, but yeah. What, what, I, what I mean, what I guess I mean is that in 1999, as a, as a kid, it felt important to me to say that this is empty craft. Again, as if I know what I'm talking about. Now, all I can look at is the craft and the craft is astonishing. And it doesn't feel empty to me. It feels in some ways to use a bit of a cliche phrase in a movie whose time has kind of come. It's not wrong about certain things that have permeated the culture since, which doesn't mean I think that it wasn't interesting in 99, but I think it's extremely interesting now. And Kent, as I've never read you on it, I'd love to know what you think. I think films that he's done that are based on novels are kind of 
more schematic than the other films. He's very beholden to the source in each case, I would say. You know, I find myself, if I, you know, I'm extremely fond of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think it's a, it's a really solid experience, but I find myself wishing that he had fucked with it a little bit more. And I find myself wishing the same thing about Fight Club to a certain degree. It's a different kind of novel, obviously. But, you know, I mean, when you're talking about him being a filmmaker of the zeitgeist, I would say when he's really great, he's the filmmaker who sets the zeitgeist. When he's following it or picking up the zeitgeist baton, as in Fight Club, it's 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 an immaculately crafted movie and it's it's funny and harrowing and everything it's supposed to be. But it's also just what it's supposed to be and less surprising than Zodiac, Benjamin Button, both mind, both seasons of Mindhunter, um, The Game, which is another film that we have not discussed, which is an extremely yeah. beautiful movie, very surprising. I think The Game is actually the one that I am hundred like I love. That's probably my favorite. Well, you know, I mean, um, it's a film that uh, I did not understand the first time I saw it. I just thought, why would some? And then I I looked at it again after Zodiac, and I was very very moved by it. And you know, you see why it's such a a favorite of, of um, like Stan Brackage loved the game. He just thought that that was, you know, and, and, but it's, I think that in t- answered Devika's question about where does he take the, the, you know, the tradition of Hollywood filmmaking and that kind of storytelling where he takes it is into exploring ambiguity, uncertainty, and, you know, just to return to what I was saying about Zodiac and Benjamin Button and, and the game too, you know, you think that you can control, you have the delusion that you can control what you cannot control. That's an extremely, you know, Kubrick went there too in, in his greatest work. Um, and so did Hitchcock and Vertigo, you know, I mean, it's, it's, and it's a very, very uh, risky place to go. And I, I, I admire him, uh, the fact that he's given shape and, and, and form to it in an epic way is really extraordinary. Zodiac really, I mean, watching it this week with Adam I was just so struck by how its formal approach, this kind of approach to time and narrative that is very unusual, the fact that characters literally disappear or drop out of the movement of the plot or different characters emerge as protagonists as time passes, um, coalesces into a really remarkable comment on justice that feels very striking in 2021 even, you know, as we're talking about the nature of policing and systems of justice. I mean, as I said, my question was kind of a bit of a devil's advocate question. I think that is a film in which he's taking, it feels so much like a procedural that that's part of the pleasure that it's familiar. If you like that, or if you like detective novels and you like, you know, cop movies, uh, there's just so much to admire, but then it's slowly pulling that apart. And also, I mean, even while you're admiring the these puzzle solvers and their grit and resilience, it's also making you really confront that a lot of a lot of the ways in which our justice and policing systems work is this delusion of control and this delusion of resolution. Ken mentioned the second season of Mindhunter, and that's hugely what that show's about sort of a gap between the question of what do you do about it and and why do people do what they do and the skepticism that the police departments have about the whole project. We don't care why people do what we do. We just want to find a way to catch them. It's not until they get the idea that the knowing why 
might help you solve the how, you know, might help you solve the all the other questions of location and almost be kind of predictive about what's going to happen. That's why the, the Mindhunter program, you know, the, the behavioral science program kind of catches on because the cops or the authority figures feel that there could be some use to it. But then you get to the Atlanta child killer stuff, which is hugely contemporary. They make history very contemporary through the way they stage that, the way communities become suspicious and afraid, distrusted institutions, limits of policing. And as Ken's saying, in terms of things feeling open, you know, the more you know, the less you actually kind of find out. The openness at the end of Zodiac and the openness at the end of Mindhunter season two are, are mirrors of each other. We're piled up with so much information and so much knowledge without any conclusion. And while part of me, the part of me that likes sitting and watching something actually good with my partner after our kids have gone to bed, wants Mindhunter back so much. I want those characters back. I want those opening credits back. I love it. It has kind of a perfect ending, even if it's not the ending that the show wanted because it has such a resolution to it. It's kind of the same way that Dragon Tattoo is accidentally kind of a perfect ending because we're in a moment now of extended universes and expanded IP. And we're either constantly going back to the beginnings of stories or drawing stories out with sequels. We don't have to even bring up superhero movies to agree that we're all kind of exhausted by it. And I think in writing about Fincher, it's not just that the movies are shapely, they're incredibly shapely. Even something like Fight Club has a perfect shape, but for works to have a perfect shape while still allowing for that irresolution that Kent is talking about, and to not be obliged to have a new chapter or a new season or a new whatever. First of all, that's cinema. It's not the only kind of cinema, but it's one kind. I don't want to say he's the apotheosis of a Hollywood cinema, but he's perfected, almost perfected kind of one kind of storytelling. And it's so funny to me that a guy like Fincher feels rare. Because if he really was what people accused him of being, which is just this kind of creature of the industry and this, this Hollywood whiz kid, then we'd have a million of them. And we don't. We've got the one. He and I did a, a thing, a Q&A, after a, a screening of Benjamin Button, and a guy stood up and raised his hand and said, uh, hey, I've heard that there's a sequel to Seven in the works. Uh, I'm wondering how you feel about that. And David said, uh, um, that sounds like a great idea. Um, <clears throat> I think that they should just go ahead and do it. He said, I myself would rather stub with cigarettes out on my eyelids than direct it myself. But if they want to go ahead and do it and the actors are into it, I think that they really should. Um, and, but I, but I, I think that what you're saying is, is absolutely on target because the second season of Mindhunter is not the continuation of the adventures of beloved characters. It's the um, elaboration of the theme and taking it into an even more disturbing area. If we're talking about his sense of, you know, working with actors, humanity, his representation of people, et cetera, I, I, I can think of no um, scene that encapsulates it better than the, the scene in Zodiac where, you know, Elias Cateas and Anthony Edwards and Mark Ruffalo go into the factory to question John Carroll Lynch, which is just every detail of that scene counts. The only thing I wanted to pick up on, because I think it's very rich that Kent brought up and it circles back a bit to Mank, which we've avoided talking about in detail, which is fine. But I have to say, I really like Mank. Not because of me. No, I, like Mank. I, I like Mank. I like Mank. Mank defenders here. <laughs> well, I, I, I wrote about it as, 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 as honestly as I could in the book. But I mean, with, with Mank, like, 
I'm interested in some of the readings of that film that aren't knee-jerk either way, but that are really actually about industry. Like Richard Brody wrote about that movie really smartly, where he thought that what Fincher's actually trying to do in that film is use the past to write a little bit about the present conditions of filmmaking, whether it's for a studio or for a streamer, the way that streamers have kind of replaced studios. And that's the tension in Mank that I find interesting. I'd love to hear what people think of this, what Ken thinks of it, where it's absolutely a movie of the past, to some extent fetishizing the past, to some extent replicating the past, name-checking the past, citing the past. It is the materials of the past. But the stuff in it that feels very passionate is clearly addressed to the present. It's clearly addressed to the idea. You mean the Republican? To, to, yeah. To, and, that, yeah. and that's also an interesting relationship because the script isn't solely written now. The script has its roots in a different time of, of, of just, I mean, just literally when Jack Fincher wrote it. And I find the way that he's trying to shape it simultaneously as a period piece of sorts, as a meditation on, on his own dad and an idea of posterity and an idea of what it is to be a subversive within the machinery. I mean, people are entitled to their rampant dislike of Mank, and there's some devastating pieces about it. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. They're more positive, I guess. But no one can claim that this movie is not about the things Fincher's interested in. And I find the ways that he personalizes it, much like the ways that he personalizes Benjamin Button, they're so much more interesting to read about than like inaccuracies about whether Orson Welles was really like this. But the territory that the movie treads on is what was fascinating to me. The way the wagons got circled and people just went off, that has to do with the fragility and I guess the importance of Wells's legend, maybe more than anything else. But you know, that line, I'm happy like cited on this podcast that Joseph McBride had. I mentioned it twice in the book where he says David Fincher can't hold Orson Welles's viewfinder. What an amazing statement and what a rich, provocative jumping off point to talk about film criticism and history and perceptions of auteurism and different kinds of filmmakers. I mean, that line is just a, it's a torpedo, you know? And then what do you do with it? I think that there are some people who, whose reputations elicit a kind of fierce yeah. protection from the people who claim to be their, quote, partisans, unquote, you know, um, and Orson Welles is certainly one of them. I don't know about the accuracies or inaccuracies. All I know is that in the film, he's written a script that, you know, comes from an idea that, you know, they've discussed. You just see the discussion happens off screen and then he delivers the script and he's like, okay, he actually says, I've given you a watertight structure and now you can do whatever you want with it. Now, again, it's like, you know, Citizen Kane is not really like other Orson Welles films in that sense. It's got a structure that's very, very different, it, or it has a, um, it holds together in a way that's quite different from from Orson Welles' other films. Certainly holds together in a way that's different from Lady from Shanghai or, or you know, um, Mr. Arcadden. And so, you know, let alone the other side of the wind. And so I think that, like, there's nothing invalid about that. And it gets back to this question of what is a script? Is a script dialogue? Sometimes, but you know, I mean, in this case, you're talking about the structure and the action, and I don't see anything invalid about that. I don't see anything all that like devastatingly, you know, negative about Orson Welles in the movie, you know. But who am I? You know, I I, I also think that, you know, I could I could take issue with the scene where, you know, Sternberg is standing there with with uh 
uh, Salznick talking to Ben Hecht and all the other writers, you know, George S. Cotton, all the Perlman and all the people in the room. And he's kind of a cipher, you know, Sternberg at that point had already worked with Ben Hecht on a couple of occasions and, you know, some of his greatest work. But I think that the, the bigger point about the movie and its relationship with the past is that it does resemble the films of the past, but it doesn't. It's widescreen. It has a look that's unlike any movie of the, out of the 30s. It has the, um, the look of that, that kind of infrared look that uh, Robert Wise started Odds Against Tomorrow with. He, uses, he used the infrared lens to get those images. And very blatantly artificial retro, right? Very. Yeah, but I don't even know about... I mean, it's retro, but not because it's very attentive to detail. It's not there to just sort of like celebrate, you know, bask in nostalgia for the 1930s, far from it. Right, or even try to recreate, really. I mean, it's like... It feels to me like that the way that movie shot and lit is very much it's foregrounding the fact that it's a movie made in the present day that's contending with, you know, some of these uh, images from the past, but not trying to be one of those images at all. Yes, that's right. I mean, it it, it reminds me of when when Fincher made uh, Zodiac, um, Harris Savides was all set to use spherical lenses from the 70s and to get a prime lens package. And Fincher said, I don't want it to look like a 70s movie. I want it to look different. By the same token, this movie looks completely different from anything um, out of the era that it's representing. You know, Mank, he's a very rich character. He's almost too abundant for the movie or something. You know, even though I know the script was revised, you know, but it's, 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 and also I think that maybe David's father had more, as he said in a podcast that I did for Film Comment last year, he has more negative, his dad had more negative feelings toward Orson Welles and positive, you know, wanted to stick up for the writers than maybe, you know, he did. So in that sense, it's a little bit at odds with itself, but I mean, you know, to say that David Fincher's not worthy of holding Orson Welles' coattails is is inactive, just hyperpartisanship. I think Adam, you quoted Fincher in your book. I don't know from what interview him saying that over time he became more sympathetic of the figure of the auteur and Wells, and so his revision, like he made his dad's script less critical of of that idea of fraught control. And also, I mean, I will just say my one little mank defense piece here, you know, I I think that, like you were saying about the social network, Kent, does it matter that the movie is not, like, perfectly historical? I mean, it's a movie. It's a very, to me, I found it a very entertaining movie, and it's fabrications mostly harmless for me. I mean, I'm not a scholar of, you know, the actual history of RKO and Wells and all that. So I'm not, I don't really know the nitty gritty of, you know, what was changed and how and why. But also to me, the central conceit of this movie is this perhaps naive, but ultimately not unfounded faith in the power of images to create narratives that may not be grounded in fact, or that the power of narratives to actually intervene a little bit in history or in in how we how we remember the past or even the present and 
I think that the movie is like kind of playing that game too in in a self-aware way, you know. It's kind of demonstrating with every scene and sequence what you can craft out of cinematic craft. It's about critical and historical turf and also a filmmaker who for the most part had stayed away from film history as such. Fincher's movies, you know, you look at his list of the best movies of all time, which he's entitled to and he's been public with, they're all made between, you know, like 68 and 79, because that's the, the, the impression period for me. All the President's Men and the movies that Ken mentioned, you know, Chinatown, you know, Godfather. Uh, rarely is there a movie too much older than that. The protectiveness and propriety, proprietary criticism about filmmakers like Wells. It's like any mistakes that this movie makes, factual mistakes, chronological mistakes, historical mistakes, they become ammunition in a line of argument that's basically just like, don't make movies about this. This is not your past. This is not your Hollywood. This is not your stuff. Orson Welles is not your character or your dad's character. And it became, again, a kind of a, a turf war that this movie was intruding on because it is so in between in terms of its history. It's about the past, but not totally of it. It's addressed to the presence, but does so kind of in between the lines and in between the seams. And because Fincher is such a smart guy and the interviews that he gave, he was kind of caught between these provocative statements about Wells that got him in deeper trouble, however deeply he meant them, and trying to say, you know, Bernie Sanders and media and the 2020 election are a big part of this movie's matrix. This is what I mean by I don't quite trust a lot of the responses to this movie and why my own, even after 6,000 words in the book, it's very non-committal. I have to point out a critic on Letterboxd, Colin Brinkman, who's a really smart guy and I'm grateful to him. This was not a piece in print, but I took it and put it in the book. He zeroes in on one little line reading Oldman does when he's reading Mankiewicz's statement after the Oscars. There's the brash put down of Wells that he has, where he's like, you know, written without the participation of Orson Wells. That's the Pauline Kael contentious legend thing. Then Oldman does a little line reading and goes, how was that? Ken, do you remember what I'm talking about? He's yeah. catching his throat. Yeah, of course. Okay, Fincher, no line reading goes uncombed over in his movies. Did he say it right? Is he trying to be annoying? Is he trying to, to get his contempt just right? Self-stage managing. Thing Kent's writing about in Gone Girl. I think of that line more than I think of almost anything in the movie. How was that? There's an uncertainty to it that I think makes the movie kind of moving for me there's an, an, an open-ended quality to it and I, I choose to kind of hold on to that rather than the totalizing dismissals of the movie that how was that kind of sticks with me because he left it in it's fascinating yeah I, I mean look a, a totalizing dismissal of that movie is is a purely provisional thing that has nothing to do with the movie yeah. ultimately it's a real like comic book guy from the simpsons attitude towards criticism I think, guys, we'll, we need to wrap up now. Thank you guys both so much for joining. Any closing statements? Yeah, closing statements. I just want to thank, uh, thank Ken for his time. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Look out for Adam's book coming out on November 23 from Abram's book. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.